we can kind of get started and let people trickle in in the next few minutes. Um, my name is Kelsey Klimbera, and I work for an organization called 1517. We are a, a broadly a theological content site similar to Mockingbird. We don't do the culture stuff uh, near as well, but we do a lot of stuff in partner partnership with Mockingbird, and um, so I'm so excited to be here with you all today. Um, I am talking about perfectionism. You do not have to be a perfectionist to be here. I hope we have, we kind of run the gamut in that, that area. Um, so to get started, I don't know if you guys heard of this story a few months ago, um, but a while back there was some chatter online about the famous organizer Marie Kondo. If you don't know who she is, she is uh, really worldwide famous. She has like a Netflix special. She's written a best-selling book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. She's taught people all over the world about how to organize and clean their homes, including myself. And there was chatter online because she admitted, I think somewhere in an interview, that um, after having three children, she had given up on tidying up. <laughs> so. Uh, in response to this, people were pretty excited. They, they went to social media, re were reposting this quote from her and saying things like, me too, and there's, there's hope for us all. But I, because I love tidying up, and I love all of the things that Marie has taught me over the years, I did not find the same joy and relief in this news. I, when I, when I saw what she had said, did not say anything like, you go girl, way to go Marie. I will, I will be honest with you, my first thought when I read this news was instead, what? What a quitter. <laughs> what a quitter Marie, you've left me on my own. This is the type of perfectionist that I am and maybe you can relate to that as well. You did come to a talk, after all, that is entitled, How to Be Perfect. I think when we talk about perfectionism or being perfect, there are two things that we uh, accept as true at the same time. The first is that no one is quite perfect, and therefore the pursuit of perfection is something to be wary of. Perfection is stifling, it is harmful, and we are meant to embrace instead the imperfection of life. We're meant to accept ourselves and others as we are. We should be wary of perfectionism. But the second thing that I think we also accept as true is that despite our lack of perfection, the perfect is still something worthwhile, something worth striving for. We assume perfection is in its essence a character strength, a cultural value, and a positive influence in our lives. And this second point is of course captured in the very overused example, but I'm gonna go ahead and use it anyway, about answering the question, what's your greatest weakness? With the answer, well, I'm a perfectionist. Because if you want to admit a weakness that is actually a strength, 
and if you want to brag but do it humbly, you tell people that you are a perfectionist. When you admit you are a perfectionist, you are, of course, also admitting a little bit that you're a control freak. But what you're also telling someone is that deep down, you value what everyone thinks will make life better and easier. Working hard in order to, to improve. What you value is becoming better. And who doesn't want that? So we are, I think, both repulsed or wary of this idea of perfectionism while also being attracted to it. We oscillate between the two. We are condemned by perfectionism, but we cannot quite quit it. So I want to give you a couple of examples of exactly what I mean. Okay, so this guy's name is um, Brian Johnson and he sold his company to PayPal for $800 million, uh, I think like a little over a decade ago. Um, and I will say, if, if my name was Ryan Johnson and I sold my company for $800 million and I had all the time in the world, I would probably be doing some same version or some version of this thing. I would probably be doing it with a shirt on, but I would be doing something like this, okay? So I don't wanna be too hard on him, but, what Brian has done is he's built this health system um, that is called Blueprint. And what Blueprint does is it measures all of the organs in his body and then works through some sort of complicated algorithm to reverse his biological age. And so he has a lot of claims on his website. You can go, I think it's like blueprint.com. You can go and look at it if you, you're interested. Um, he has a lot of claims about what this has done for him and uh, some of these claims I wanted to share with you. The first is that he claims Blueprint has slowed the pace of his aging by the equivalent of 31 years. So he is now apparently aging slower than the average 10-year-old. Uh, Blueprint has also uh, brought down his body inflammation or to the point where his body inflammation is 66% below the average 10-year-old. He's also had an 80% reduction in gray hair. I'm not sure. Again, I don't know how he's measuring these things, but that's, that's what he's doing. And all of this, of course, is accomplished through a very intense diet and exercise regimen, a very strict sleep schedule. He takes 25 supplements a day. He also has a skincare routine, which I will admit makes his skin look like a newborn baby's bottom. Um, so I feel like he could just package that and sell that and he'd be, he'd be great. Um, but I think Brian, I think he really would tell you this. I don't know. I think he would say that what he's attempting is something akin to perfectionism in a physical form. One of the videos on his site is entitled Escape Death. So read into that what you will. And we can chuckle at this a little bit, but I also have to admit, when I read Brian's reasoning for starting this, this program, I found myself intrigued. This is what he says. He says, Blueprint was born after feeling helpless to stop myself from overeating to soothe the pains of life. When 7 p.m. rolled around, there was nothing I could do to stop myself from engaging in this self-destructive behavior. I had a goal alignment problem within self. 
That is very strong tech talk for I am imperfect. Not the way I would have said it, but who can relate to that? I had a goal alignment problem within self. He now says Blueprint is an algorithm that takes better care of me than I can myself. Now you can build your autonomous self as well. I can't help it. I'm tempted. I'm tempted by this idea. Okay, the second example, I don't know if you guys are familiar with TikTok, but you pro I'm, I'm guessing you have heard of this, um, this thing called a face filter, which you can use on TikTok or Instagram. And this is a new face filter that TikTok has put out called Bold Glamour that people are freaking out about. Because usually what a face filter does is it of course makes you look more beautiful, it smooths your skin, all of that stuff. But it's a little glitchy, like if you turn or you put your hand in front of your face, you can tell um, that the person using it is wearing a face filter. This one does not do that. People are like putting their hands in front of their face, it doesn't move, it's really, really creepy. So you have no idea that someone has this on unless they as the user tell them, or tell you that they are using a filter. You can watch hours of women and men using this filter and reacting in the same way, saying something like, this is terrible, it's unhealthy and it's wrong and we should stop it. Uh, and this makes me feel terrible, terrible about myself. All the while they have the filter on and then they take it off and they reveal their actual faces. I'm making a lot of confessions uh, today. Another confession I have to tell you is that when I watch these videos, which I've watched a lot of them, and people do take the filter off, they do look a lot uglier, like a lot uglier. <laughs> I think um, I'm gonna show you one TikTok video of a user doing this kind of on and off thing while she's talking about the, the bad effects of this filter, and I think she really captures kind of the problem at hand. Oops. We might not have sound. Can y'all read that? I'll just play it if you can read it. Sorry, y'all. There was some sound. I, I don't know if you got much of that, but um, if, if, you, if you didn't, what she is saying is of course that 
things like this raise the standard for everybody. And then the fact that people can, in actuality, somewhat accomplish this look just feeds into this idea, this never-ending hamster wheel of perfectionism, which she argues, and I would agree, results in exhaustion and burnout and anxiety. The closer someone gets to perfection, the more amplified their flaws become. The closer we get to perfection, the more amplified our flaws become. We know the insane beauty standards set by these face filters are unattainable and damaging, yet we put them on anyway. Or like me, we watch as other people put them on and take them off, viewing these, uh, these actions from afar with both repulsion and awe. We are repulsed that we aren't perfect, and we are intrigued that we theoretically could be. What would happen if we just kept trying? If we just got one step closer? It's that what-ifness of perfectionism that is so alluring, at least it is to me. And yet, I would assume that for most, the pursuit of perfectionism leads to places similar as those we just talked about to exhaustion and anxiety, a never-ending project, and therefore, a place of discontent. I think we are both attracted to perfectionism and repulsed by it, because it reveals something we know is true. If a perfect something exists out there, then we are not it. And if perfection exists, even if it's simply as an ideal, what does that mean for us? And what does that say about us? I think on some level we know it says something very problematic for us. And here I'm not necessarily talking about the problem of not looking a certain way or living a certain amount of time. I'm talking about the deeper issue we try to relieve or solve by distracting ourselves with these little perfection pursuits. I'm talking about our sin, our brokenness, as Dave was talking about last night, that, that last big problem we cannot fix. The fact that deep down we know, even if we are as close to perfection as we can be, it still won't be enough. And that's, that's the most horrible thing about perfectionism, because no matter how close you get to your ideal, you can't, you can't solve all of your problems. You're still going to have problems, and perhaps even a few more than before when you, try, you started trying to fix the problem at hand. Um, I think toddlers are a really good reminder of the toll that perfectionism can take on us. Not necessarily perfectionism itself, but more of the feeling of perfectionism. If you've ever been around a toddler, you know they have a very special talent for reminding you that whatever standard you thought was good enough does not cut it. Uh, the other day, I was running errands with my toddler, and we were quickly trying to get some stuff done, and so I let him know in the car, hey, we're gonna go to the grocery store, really quickly get some food and leave, and he said, well, I want to go to Target. And I said, uh, well, I'm so sorry, but we are gonna go to the grocery store tonight, we're not going to Target. To which he responded, well, I need a cart. I can't walk, I need to sit in a cart. To which I responded, oh, don't, don't worry, bud. They're gonna have carts there. You're gonna be able to sit, you don't have to walk. No, not a problem, there will be a cart for you. To which he responded, well, I need a fire truck cart. 
he's getting a little bit amped up at this point. So I'm trying to, you know, keep things calm. And I say, well, I, you know, I'm so sorry. I don't, I don't think that they have a fire truck cart there, but they're going to have just a normal one. You can sit. You do not have to walk. We'll be in and out. To which he then responded, I need, I need a blueberry cereal cart. To which I did not respond because there's absolutely no response to that ridiculous demand. What even is that? I don't, I don't know. Perfectionism, just like toddlers, always up the ante because perfectionism is a way for us to try and cope, to cope with or to control sin in our lives. But sin is too pervasive and it's too far reaching for that. And so the perfectionist is met with this moment where you either have to keep striving with all the negative repercussions we've talked about or you have to give up and do your best to live with your perfection remaining a what if. And I would say either way, on some level, at some point, you're going to be faced with discontent. The question then is what do you do with that discontent? Author Wendell Berry is a master of developing characters who are content with small, mundane, and ordinary lives. In his renderings of the fictitious uh, rural town of Port William, he shows men and women who, while they may wrestle with their meaning and their significance, find solace in being known by a place and a community. But in his novel, Jaber Crow, one of Barry's characters offers a stark contrast to this way of life. Cecilia, Cecilia Overhold is described by the novel's narrator and main character, the same Jaber Crow, in this way. Cecilia thought that whatever she already had was no good by virtue of the fact that she already had it. The things she desired were all things she didn't have. The failure of the entire population of Port William to live up to Cecilia's expectations brought heavy pressure to bear upon any newcomer or outsider who happened in. She was always latching on to new preachers or school teachers, anybody from a way who supposedly might prove to be as superior to Port William as she was. And they invariably disappointed her, either by liking the commonality of Port William or by regarding her as one of its members, which, as a matter of fact, she was, was correct. According to Jaber, the underlying manifestation of Cecilia's discontent is her own unhappiness with herself her own realization that she is not quite what or who she would hope to be. He says this later on in the novel. Theoretically, there is always a better place for a person to live, better work to do, a better spouse to wed, better friends to have. But then this person must meet herself coming back. Theoretically, there is always a better inhabitant of this place a better member of this community, a better worker, spouse, and friend than she is. This surely describes one of the circles of hell and who hasn't traveled around it a time or two. When we meet ourselves coming back at some point like Cecilia, we have to face our discontent for what it is. 
a reflection of something we lack within ourselves, a reflection of our imperfections. Even if perfectionism is not necessarily a problem for you, and I, I am not trying to argue that it is a problem for everyone, I do think discontent is something that plagues us all. Why are we not better? Why aren't we more? More than that person over there. And if you've hatched a plan to become better as a result of this discontent, and then gotten caught up in what this plan says about you and means for you, then I think you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so you've listened to me talk for a little bit about the dangers and the allure of perfectionism, but this is, brings us to an impasse because if you've read any scripture, you know that there are very clear passages which do not simply talk about perfection, but demand it. Jesus himself demands perfection. During the heart of his uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says this after a, particular, a particularly illuminating passage on the law. And specifically, what he is talking about and illuminating is the latter portion of the Ten Commandments. It's important to note that what Jesus is doing here is clarifying the law as it was originally given in the Torah. He's stating the law as God has always intended for it to be heard. He's doing this because he knows that the Jewish rulers and teachers of the day have amended the law to their liking. They have watered it down. They have distorted it in ways that make it more amenable for their own glorification. And he will have none of this. He will only have perfection. So the, in the culmination of this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus is addressing the fact that breaking any of the latter half of the commandments comes from a lack of others. And love, therefore, plays an integral part in God's perfection, how we understand God's perfection. Love that is far more difficult to achieve than we would hope. Because what Jesus says is that we shouldn't simply love our friends, but our enemies. Who is the person least like you, or the person who, are th who has hurt you most, whose very existence seems to grate on your nerves? Because Christ's call is to love that person and to pray for them, to shower them with forgiveness and kindness and empathy. To be perfect in God's eyes, you have to love unendingly, irresponsibly, and completely unselfishly. We're gonna come back to this connection between love and perfection. But I wanna look for just a brief moment at how the word perfection is originally used in scripture, kind of on a broad level, because I think that that's also an, uh, an important part in figuring out what exactly Jesus is commanding us to do. So biblically, the word perfection is translated in a couple of different ways. The first way um, usually comes out to be a translation of without blemish or without fault. Blameless would be a good uh, synonym in this translation. And so this, this way of using perfection implies a lack of something. It has a negative connotation. You have to be without 
something in order to be perfect. The other way that perfection is used, both in the Old Testament and the New, is um, along these lines of being whole or complete. And in the Old Testament specifically, this use is tied to the word shalom. Uh, so the, the use also suggests security, soundness, and well-being. And th so therefore, this use of the word has a positive connotation, almost as if it's the fulfillment of something. So to be perfect, you need to be without something, and you need to have something. You need to be whole and complete. <clears throat> the good news at this point is that the type of perfection demanded by God is very different from our own understanding of perfection that we kind of went over at the beginning. Our perfectionism is so partitioned and self-serving as to be petty in comparison to this. But that's also the bad news. Because actual perfection, the type that God has set as his standard, is so much further off and so much more impossible than we thought. It is unblemished love given to those in need. It is complete goodness in thought, word, and deed. It is tied to wholeness and security both within yourself and with those around you. But make no mistake, this is a commandment, and therefore it is required of you. It's not a suggestion, and it's not hyperbole. And yet, even though this commandment to be perfect is better, it's more complete than our smaller definitions, it is not accomplishable by you or by me. How do I know? I think we could look at a lot of, in a lot of places um, but today we're going to let the Apostle Paul be our guide. Okay, so Paul describes himself uh, in Philippians, we're going to look at Philippians 3, as one who, when it comes to the standards of dotting the I's and crossing the T's of God's commandments, came pretty near to perfection. He says this, If anyone else thinks he has confidence, or he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He might as well have said, when it comes to righteousness under the law, he was without blemish. And yet what did he lack? If we, if we continue reading, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had a righteousness from the law. He had confidence in his flesh. 
he had all but accomplished his own definition of perfection. But he lacked the righteousness from God that depends on faith in Christ. He lacked Christ himself. And when Christ is absent, when he is absent, so too are his gifts, his forgiveness, his righteousness, his grace, his perfection. Without these, we remain reliant on an altogether inadequate footing. Um, theologian James Montgomery Boyce has this to say about the matter. He says, you can pile human goodness upon human goodness upon human goodness upon human goodness. You can refine and perfect it and polish it, but no matter how hard you try, to, you fall short of God's standard because human righteousness is qualitatively different from the righteousness of God. It belongs to a different realm entirely. And here's another uncomfortable reality about perfection based on the law. Not only can it never save us, when we assume it can save us, it actually drives us to unrighteousness. Because what Paul thought was saving him was actually killing him. What he thought was good and holy was, was and, and what he thought was good and holy and just was actually evil and unholy. I want to be clear, God's law is holy. God's law does give us the best roadmap for what life should look like. To desire God's goodness as defined by the law is a good thing. But what happens is that we cannot help but take this law and make it the how-to by which we reach God. And when we do that, and then we start to feel condemned under the weight of not measuring up, we make a good thing bad, which is in a new song. I don't know if you watched the show, Daisy Jones and the Six. It's really good. You should watch it. Uh, we make a good thing bad. We begin to twist the law or to distort it or even to invert it into its opposite. Um, there's this Instagram influencer that I followed for a really long time. Her name is Lee Tillman, and her handle is Lee from America. Uh, she used to be, for a really long time, she was a wellness influencer. So just like the things Rena talked about, her feed was filled with those things. Yoga, smoothies, talk of self-love. You, you probably get the idea. Uh, in 2019, she had just under 400,000 followers, and she was making three figures from influencing. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she took a really long hiatus. I think it was like eight months. She was just gone. And when she came back on social media, she began to slowly open up about recovering from an eating disorder and trying to figure out what she was going to do next. You could see her kind of wrestling with this in real time if you were following her. Uh, since then, Lee has quit influencing altogether. She works a normal nine to five and while she doesn't make any money from social media, she um, has used her still very large social media platform to talk about the dangers and pressures that accompanied her while she was influencing. And that is a whole other conversation for another time. But what struck me about Lee was the pressure she felt to be perfect and where that need drove her. 
There's been a lot of articles actually written about Lee. She was just featured in the New York Times, but um, an article I think that came out earlier this, this year, actually in Teen Vogue, uh, which was entitled, Lee from America's Fall from Wellness, had this to say. Rather than mitigating stress or nourishing her body, Lee wrote in a blog post that she was obsessed with making her life perfect so she could feel good. The truth, Lee said, is that she was consumed by the very thing promising to free her. Like Paul, Lee's pursuits drove her to an inversion of the law she believed promised perfection. The law of wellness made her sick. The law of wellness masqueraded as a gospel, like Rena just talked to us about. And yet it couldn't deliver. And Paul's blame, blamelessness under the law drove him not to God's love, but to persecution and to murder. So this leads me to ask, where has the law driven you? I bet if you think about it for a few seconds, you can come up with somewhere a desire to be perfect or righteous, or perhaps even your accomplishment of such things on some level has driven you. And if you're honest, I bet it's not where you would have hoped. When the law, and in particular, the law of perfectionism, promises you happiness and righteousness and a better life, is this what it actually delivers to you? And you may say at this point, well, Kelsey, I'm a Christian. I should be able now to do these things asked by God. So that leads me to a couple other questions. Is perfection through the law attainable for the Christian in this life? Is perfection attainable for the Christian in this life? And does righteousness in faith give you the ability to go fulfill righteousness by the law? I don't think this is what Paul is saying. And I don't think scripture bears this out as true. In this Philippians passage in particular, Paul isn't saying that in Christ, he's now somehow supercharged to fulfill the law perfectly. And I think, unfortunately, what is expressed from pulpits more often than we would like is that if you claim to be a Christian, then you have been filled with the power to slowly tiptoe your way up to Heavenly Father perfection. If you are a Christian, the way you know you're a Christian is through the pursuit of holy perfection and by some measurement of progress in that area. Again, this is not to say, I'm not trying to say that holy, righteous, and loving behavior is something we shouldn't pursue or desire. It's simply to argue that this misplaces trust from what God has done for you, who Christ is for you, on your work toward and for Christ. And that's a problem. So where has the law driven you? Where has your need to do things better than the next person, to achieve more, or even to pursue Christian perfection driven you? I know where it's driven me. When I was in college, I was very focused, very, very focused and very good at becoming a better Christian. I went to a Christian university, I volunteered all of the time at all of these nonprofits. 
I was intent in my quiet time. I went on mission trips. I could go on, but you, you get the idea. I had this belief that the more perfect I became, the more I would matter both to God and to those around me. But functionally, looking back, I can say that this mentality led to one of two places, pride in a fake sense of righteousness and comparison upon comparison that I was getting somewhere, that I was doing better than that person over there. Or it led me to immense despair, coupled with deep insecurity and fatigue and anxiety. That not only was I failing, but that I was worthless as a result. So regardless of whether I was boasting or despairing during that time in my life, I was deeply discontent and far, very far from my original goal of becoming a more loving and well-rounded person and becoming a better Christian. What I found and what I continue to find is that the pursuits of perfectionism, they don't have time and they can't make room for things like community and love and faith because perfectionism always operates on these lies, the lies that sin is not a reality so that you, you can overcome, that forgiveness is not necessary, and that other people are only tools or hindrances to us reaching our goals. So we are condemned to this ping-pong state between these terrible outcomes of pride and despair. What changed for me and what I need to hear still over and over is that Christ doesn't want my perfection because he has already given me his own. So how does he do this? What does righteousness and perfection given in Christ actually look like? You want to become perfect, right? Good. Here, finally, here's our guide for how we're going to do it. I have to warn you, you may not like it. Because the only way to be made perfect, the only real way to real perfection, is through death. Or more specifically, through the death of Christ. The only way to become perfect is for you to die. Your terrible, incomplete ideas of perfectionism, as well as your plans, for how you are gonna accomplish these. All of this needs to be buried deep down in a grave. Otherwise, you will not give it up. I won't give it up. And this is exactly what God does for us. Because when he claims us as his own, when he baptizes us with his water and his word, when he gifts us faith, we are buried with Christ. When Christ goes to the cross to die, he takes on all the things you've done wrong, all the ways you've disobeyed God. But he also takes with him all those things you think you've done right in order to justify yourself and create yourself into whatever sort of perfect deity you're imagining. Sin is both of these things. It's any and all lack of trust in who Jesus is for you. So he takes our sin, and then he dies, so that sin dies with him, and thus you die too. But fortunately, death isn't enough. That's not the end of the story. 
You can't be left in the grave on a hope and a prayer that you can raise yourself from the dead. It's not going to happen. You can't just be forgiven, your sins wiped clean in Christ's death, in order for you to start over and try again. Your sins, yes, must be taken away, but you also must receive something. Remember what we talked about in the way that perfection is used in the Bible. Perfection is defined biblically as not only the absence of something, the absence of sin, but the fulfillment of something the wholeness and completeness of Christ's righteousness. So to become perfect, a death must take place, but new life must also be given. When the Holy Spirit gives you faith in Christ, you are not only united to him in his death on the cross, you are raised to new life in his resurrection. When God calls Jesus out of that tomb, he calls you too, and he names you as perfectly righteous. When he sends a preacher to you to, to preach his law and his gospel, he kills you and he raises you again. This is the good news, y'all. This is not just the guide we've been searching for. It's more help than we would ever ask for on our own. Jesus did our homework. He completed the task. We die and we rise. Christ takes our imperfections away and he gives us perfection. And in the reality of faith and in the reality of your baptism, this has already happened to you. So how do you become perfect? In Christ, you already are. Right now, this very minute, it is finished. And yet we know, we know in this life that sin persists and will persist in the now and not yet. For instance... Despite my best wishes and who I am in Christ, I still remain set on dethroning Marie Kondo as the world's organizational queen. So because of this, it is absolutely necessary to continue to talk about ourselves as sinners unable to meet God's perfect commandments, unable to fulfill them, as well as saints who on account of Christ are already perfect. This paradox of being sinners and saints is essential to navigating the Christian life. And I think it's also essential in understanding not just what perfection is, but what striving for perfection should look like. For the new man or woman in Christ, when you strive for perfection and you fail, and therefore the law bears down on you, when this happens, because you are in Christ, you can be honest about who you really are and turn back to him. I think that this is kind of that idea, I think uh, uh, Dave said last night, the assimilation of the negative, that idea that he was talking about. I think it fits perfectly here. If there is a proper place for striving, this is it. It's not upward away from what God has done and is doing. It's downward into the depths of your mundane, imperfect life where God is always at work to pull you toward his loving embrace, toward more reliance on him, and more faith in his promises. Uh, Lutheran theologian Francis Pieper has this to say about this process. He says, nothing makes Christians so conscious of their daily deficiencies as the earnest striving for perfection. And when they acknowledge and confess 
their daily shortcomings before God, they flee for refuge to divine grace, knowing that the grace of God takes no account of the law and human works, of our daily success or failure in sanctification and good works. Striving after perfect sanctification, the Christian thus leads a life of daily repentance. This is what this means. When you hear Christ's command, be perfect, hear that you are not perfect and that you should be. And then get your head out of your butt and hear this as well. Despite this, Christ is your perfection and your righteousness. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Your faith in Christ's work on the cross, this is where perfectionism dies and freedom reigns. Because sin is no longer your master, death no longer your end, the law no longer your accuser. Just like with Paul, we wait in hope for the resurrection of the dead. And since in Christ you are perfect, you have nothing to fear, nothing to achieve, nothing to prove, nothing in which to find discontent. Once perfectionism dies with all of its schemes and its variations and its measurements, freedom reigns. Out of this freedom, God promises that a flood of love always flows. Love that is untethered, untamed, and wholly given to the neighbor in need. This love comes directly from our perfect Father. It's his love. And it flows to us and then through us, despite our sin, despite our rebellion, despite our imperfections. It's love that doesn't rely on measurements or progress or the spotlight, and therefore it is all gift whenever and wherever it shows up. So breathe. Take a minute and breathe and rest and hear and trust that God promises he is doing this work through you. His love will flow through you. Thank the Lord that like Marie Kondo, we can all give up. Christ has already made you into your best self and he will continue to do so. He is ripping your plans and attempts for the perfect life out of your hands as we speak. And he has already replaced this with something far better, with his own perfection. You are free. Go now and be the perfect self that you were recreated to be.